Good morning. I'm going to read Genesis 11, 1 through 9. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used um, for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower and that the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. This is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. Good morning, church. My name is Eric Simpson. I'm part of the uh, teaching team here at Oak Ridge. About 10 years ago, uh, my brother was going on a road trip, and he asked if he could borrow my iPod. I was like, yeah, sure, man. No problem. You can, you can have my iPod. And maybe I just wasn't thinking clearly, uh, but when someone asks me if they can borrow my iPod, I'm assuming they're going to listen to my music, right? Well, that wasn't the case with my brother. His plan was to listen to his music on my iPod. And you know, 10 years ago, that probably wouldn't have been a problem because I could have just backed it up from somewhere in the cloud, right? But it was a problem because at that point in time, my music resided on a 2001 desktop gateway computer <laughs> that at this point in time had found its way to the container of misfit electronics at the Alpha Ridge dump. And so I get my iPod back and all of my songs are gone. Fast forward a few months and I'm on a long road trip myself this time, listening to my brother's songs. And you kinda, sometimes I get to the point in a road trip where I've had enough music and I'm ready to listen to something different, like somebody talk or learn something, you know? So I start scrolling through his, uh, his playlist and see what he's got for me. And I come across this pastor from a church I've never heard of, and I pick something that grabs my attention and I press play. Have you ever had a moment in your life that you can look back on and realize after that moment, your life was different? Like maybe you didn't see it when you were going through it, but it's clear in hindsight, things changed after that moment. This was one of those moments for me. I began to listen to a lot of sermons from uh, this guy and lots of sermons from others that he was influenced by. And the way that this guy and these others, they, the way they taught and they preached and they exalted God in a way that just changed me. Like it changed my understanding of Scripture. It changed my affections for Christ. It caused me to more deeply understand the weight of my own sin in light of the holiness of God, yet at the same time be overwhelmed by the grace that he's shown me despite the gap in those two things. And so as I briefly mentioned as our, in our first uh, week in this series, earlier in my life, before this point in time, I think I really had kind of an incomplete understanding and application about my salvation. Like I, I believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
I believe that my sins have been forgiven because of that, but I was also more interested in what God could do for me. Like, how could he make my life better? How could he help me get that promotion that I was looking for? How could I take the things that I was learning and what he was teaching in Scripture and become a better version of myself? And my faith had kind of moved into this area of being more me-centered. I was making God about me. And while there is some truth in the idea that, that God was for me, that's really far from the full picture that we see in Scripture. And on that road trip 10 years ago, that was just really one step of many in, in God refashioning and reorienting my heart from being me-centered and starting to change it and focus it on what the Bible says and what this life is actually about. So what does the Bible say? And what is this life actually about? Like, what is the point? Well, as we've already seen a number of times in this series, from the very beginning, God has been at work to rescue and to redeem his fallen creation, to get back what has been lost. Well, today I want to stop and consider, why is God doing this? And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, and we will see again today, like man can just not stop rebelling against God. So why would God continue to show them mercy? Why would he continue to work his plan to fix the mess that we find ourselves in? Like, what is his aim in all of this? At the end of the day, what is the point that God is after? Because our hearts want God to be about us, don't they? And he is to some extent, but that is not his highest aim. What God is most serious about, the point of the Bible, the point of the universe, the point of history, is the glory of God. And put simply in terms that really took hold of my heart 10 years ago, God is about God. That is his primary aim. And I was raised in a Bible-teaching, God-exalting church, so I'm sure I was introduced to this idea at some point as I grew up, but I don't think I had ears to hear it back then. And ten years ago, God in his grace finally gave me ears to hear, because there's a difference, right? There's, there's a hearing that penetrates through the ears and into the brain, but then there's a hearing that moves past that and into your soul. And so that's my hope and my prayer for us this morning, that in a fresh way or maybe for the first time, that the word of God and his reality about his glory would move past your ears and past your brain and into your soul. Because the glory of God and understanding of the glory of God has changed my life over the past decade, and I hope it's going to change yours as well. So let's turn our attention to Scripture, and let's look at how the Tower of Babel is about the glory of God. Well, after the flood, which we covered last week, right, when Noah and his family get off the boat, God tells them three times in 13 verses to multiply and to fill the earth. So everything God says is important, right? Like, I think we'd all agree with that. But when God repeats himself, maybe there's something in that that we should pay attention to. Maybe he's trying to emphasize the point he's trying to make. And what he's telling humanity in these verses is have babies spread out and fill the earth with more humans. But by chapter 11, and the verses we just read, we see that Noah's descendants are again not listening to the voice of God, again not doing what he's asked them to do. And 11 verse 4 says that, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city 
and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. So rather than doing what God says, the people and the generations after Noah decide that they know what is best, and they begin to again pursue their own plans. They take these bricks, they form them, they bake them, and with these bricks, there's two things that they're seeking to build, a city and a tower. And there are two aims of what they are building, what they are doing. They aim to make a name for themselves and to not be dispersed over the face of the earth. And I think we see that these goals are related. Like building a city will provide us what? Provides us walls, protections, boundaries. A city keeps us together so that they will have a sense of safety, a sense of security. And then within the confines of the city and the safety that it provides, they're seeking to make a name for themselves. They want the world to know who they are on this plain in the ancient Near East. They want the rest of man to look at them and see how great they are because of what they've been able to build. So rather, sp- rather than spreading out as God has commanded them, they want to stay in their man-made sense of security. And in their staying, they want to become famous. So as Dave reminded us last week, even after the flood and God starting over again with Noah's family, it turns out, out that man's heart is no better than it was before the flood. And we see that playing itself out here. These people love the sense of security and they love the praise of man more than they loved their God. And these inward sins that they were experiencing, they manifested themselves in this outward expression of, of building this city and building this tower. Wasn't the same still true of you and me sometimes, even today? Like, don't we still drift into wanting to find our security in things other than God? Don't we still seek the praise of man and want to make a name for ourselves? Well, here's the modern-day version of how I do this. Maybe you can relate. I recently found myself checking my retirement account like once every couple of weeks. Now, there's, there's wisdom in that, right? Like you have to save for retirement. You've got to plan for that kind of stuff. But why does my heart seem to rise and fall with the number that I see in the account, right? Like what is that except looking for eternal security in something other than God? And then I've actually literally been part of building a 20-story tower, like not physically, not with these soft hands, but on the, on the management side, I've been a part of a team that's done that, right? And so many times as I drive past this building that we, that we constructed, I kind of get this sense of accomplishment and pride begin to, to well up in me. Now part of that is okay, but where my heart moves into the position of a, look at me, look what I did, that's not Okay. If I begin to drift into the thinking that this building that we did, that this project was about me and making a name for myself and not God's call in my life, that's where I begin to drift into what he, not what he has for me. And so these sins of looking for security and something other than God and desiring the praise of man is something that I can shift into very easily. How about you? Do you see any of yourself in this story of the Tower of Babel? And as we've seen on repeat in Genesis, and again we're going to see uh, this morning, God, or man continues to go directly against what God wants them to do, what he's made clear to them. He says, multiply and fill the earth. 
And they say, no, we're going to stay where it's comfortable, and we're going to cause people to know about us. We are not going to do what you've told us to do, God. Again, direct rebellion against their creator. So what's God going to do this time? Like two pages back, he just destroyed everything except for some animals and one family. So what's he going to do this time? Is this going to be it? Like he's done, lightning bolts zap everybody, and it's over. No. The theme that we see in all of Scripture and that we've been focusing on in Genesis, this theme of God needing to rightly judge and rightly show his justice, but also showing his mercy, they continue in the story of Babel. In verse 7, God says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. So God comes down. He has to come down to their tower. So I guess it wasn't as tall as they were thinking it was going to be, right? And he says, this is not happening. If you're going to take my image and twist it into the name for yourself rather than rightly representing me, I'm not having it. God says, if you're not going to move out and multiply and fill the earth, I'm going to intervene because that's my will and it will happen. So in response to what they do, God comes down and he creates multiple languages and he scatters humanity across the earth. Have you ever come across a passage of scripture and you're like, what? Like, come on, God. You've got to admit, you've kind of overreacted there. Right? And I think this can be one of those passages for us on the surface. Like, is God really worried that they're going to be able to build this tower so tall? They're going to come to the gates of heaven in some kind of Trojan horse like configuration and then storm in and overtake the throne by force. Is that what God's worried about here? Is that what he means when he says that nothing they propose to do will be impossible? What do you think's going on here? Stop and think about it for a minute. If man is able to accomplish anything he sets his mind to, who gets the praise in that situation? Where does the glory go if we're able to do whatever it is we set our minds to? So here's what I think is going on in this passage. If man is able to do whatever it is that we set our minds to, the fallen nature of man will twist that success from a God-glorifying image of God reflecting into a make much of me, look what I did, look how awesome I am, and we will take the focus off of God and put it on ourselves every time, every time. And where man, a created being, begins to take on himself that which he wasn't created for and was only intended for the creator, we just make a mess of things with it. We cannot bear that which we were not created for. What we were created for was to reflect God's glory to man, not to be glorified by man. And so the upper story, one of the themes we've been looking at in this series, the upper story, what God is actually up to, what he's doing at Babel, is communicating the truth that we see throughout the rest of Scripture, that God is serious about him being the one who gets the glory. He's serious about the fame of his name and the praise of who he is, that God is about God. And at Babel, God creates multiple languages and scatters man across the earth for this purpose, for his glory. Now, the glory of God is, is language that we use often, right? Like in our prayers, in our songs, 
even outside of, of church world, it's used in, as we, to describe like victory in war or, or in sports, right? The glory goes to the, the person who wins. And so I, I was wondering if maybe this is a word that's kind of lost a bit of the, the weight and the magnitude of it. And if we can't quite seem to feel it or to see it, then maybe that's why one of the reasons why we could be so quick to want to steal it from God. But it's never a good idea for the mouse to take the dinner of the lion, right? So what is the glory of God? And why does God even deserve something like glory? Well, defining God's glory is a little bit hard to do. Um, thinking about it this way has been helpful for me, that, that God's glory is his nature, his character, his holiness, who he is made visible, put on display for all to see. One author says it like this, trying to define the glory of God. He says it can be a bit like trying to define beauty, that there are some words in our vocabulary that we communicate with, not because we can define them, but because we can see them. We can point to it. And if we point to it enough and see it enough things together, then we can begin to say, that's it, and that's it, and that's it. And we begin to get a sense of what beauty is is. But when you try to put a word like beauty into words, it is very, very difficult. So to help us see it, to help us feel the weight of God's glory, I thought we could read some passages of scripture that will point us to it. Now this is going to be a lot of scripture, so I'm going to have this come out and some other verses in the all church email this week, so rather than trying to write it down and take notes, just listen. And listen for the language that is used in these passages about the importance of God's name, who he is. And think about that in contrast to what we see at the Tower of Babel. At the end of Romans 11, after like 11 chapters of just deep theology, deep meaty theology, Paul just bursts into this exclamation about how amazing God is. And he says this, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So this is the worth of God. There is no one greater. There is no one smarter. There is nothing more worthy of our praise, including ourselves, God Almighty, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then we can look at the rest of Scripture to really expand on what Paul means here by all things being to the glory of God. In Psalm 19, we see that creation is about the glory of God. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah 6 tells us that the whole earth is full of the glory of God. Ezekiel 20 says, but for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. So the exodus from Egypt was for the glory of God. Isaiah 48 says, for my own namesake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. For my own sake, for the sake of my name, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. So God not destroying Israel completely in that moment was about his glory. In John 17, Jesus says, I have brought you glory 
on the earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Jesus' life was about the glory of God. John 12, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. He's looking forward to the cross, and he says, now my soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very hour that I came. Father, glorify your name. The cross of Jesus is about the glory of God. Psalm 106 says, yet he saved them for his name's sake. So our salvation, even though it's about us, is ultimately about the glory of God. In Psalm 23, a verse that we really try to take and put on ourselves a lot of times, it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Isaiah 43 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Our lives are about the glory of God. And then in Revelation, it says that the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives it its light. And so in eternity, we will get to experience firsthand the glory of God. So from the Old Testament to Revelation, this truth permeates Scripture that everything is about the glory of God. And he is serious about his glory and his name and him being the one who gets the attention, not us. And where we walk in the pattern of Babel, and we seek to steal the spotlight and put the attention on ourselves, that's when we walk into sin against the holy God. So how do we start to fight against this? How do we start to to move from that position into one that seeks the glory of God in all things? Well, a couple of thoughts, but the good news is that God is already at work fighting for us in this area. Like that in his mercy, God directly intervenes to help us take our eyes off of ourselves and put them back on him. Augustine makes this case that our sin is actually our our love disordered. It's disordered love. That sin is placing our love and our affections on things other than God. And so if this is true, if, if Augustine's case is true, then God doing whatever it takes to rightly order our desires is his mercy on us. And that's what we see happening at, the, at uh, Babel as well. God is so serious about his glory and our experience of it that he will directly intervene in our lives to make it happen, including stopping man's plans, changing languages, and scattering people. And I got to thinking, isn't this a bit like the thorn in Paul's side? that we read about in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul had directly received a revelation from God about who God was and who Jesus was and how everything tied together that he knew from the Old Testament. He wasn't told it from another human. God told Paul directly. And so Paul says that in order to keep him from becoming conceited in this, the fact that he had this direct revelation, that God did something to prevent him from walking in that pride. In 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, in red letters, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
God had given Paul direct revelation. But to keep him humble, to keep pride from welling up in him, to keep him from boasting about how great he was, to prevent Paul from making a name for himself and taking the focus off of God, God put a thorn in his flesh to remind him that God alone gets the glory. So at Babel, by confusing man's language, did God put a thorn in the side of humanity to keep us from the pride that we so easily step into and to make sure that God alone gets the glory and that we get to experience it? It certainly seems like, like there's some parallels there to me. God is about God, and in his mercy towards us, he will stop our plans. He may put a thorn in our side to keep us from the pride that would get in our way of experiencing his glory. Have you ever experienced something like this in your life? Like, have there been times where you're just not sure what God is doing and why he's doing it? Like, maybe that's true for you this morning. Like, you still don't understand the circumstances you find yourself in and how God could possibly be making you walk through this right now. Well, this idea of the glory of God is not some, like, separate theology from what we experience on the ground. Like, for me, and part of my journey over the past 10 years, like, the glory of God has met me in some of those moments where I just can't quite figure out what's going on. But then in his mercy, he reminds me, it's not about you. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The good things, the hard things, the confusing things, all things. To God be the glory forever. And this was just, this was just been a game changer for me. Like it's so different to to see your life from a me-centered perspective and to move from that into one of a God-centered perspective and seeing your circumstances, seeing the world, everything around you in light of what God's doing, what he's about, and that he gets the glory in all of it. But we must make this move because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. So how do we begin to do this, right? How do we start to move from a a me-centered perspective into one that's God-centered, into a a life that, rather than stealing God's glory, wants to begin to reflect God's glory? Well, anyone with kids in their house or who has had kids in their house with Legos has seen objective evidence that there's something wired in us to build, right? Like this is a picture of a tower that Nathan made in his room. So was Nathan sinning by creating a tower? Like, is his tower like the Tower of Babel? Remember, on one hand, God has wired us, he's commanded us to rule, to subdue, to have dominion. In essence, to, to do what the people in Genesis 11 began to do, to take the dirt, the raw materials of the earth, to form them into bricks and to begin to build something out of them. That was God's call for humanity in the garden. So if done rightly, we're actually able to carry out God's command in our lives in whatever it is that we're building. So how do we know then whether we're walking in the ways of Babel, the wrong ways of Babel, or the right ways of the garden? Well, like Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, right, it's about our heart. It's our heart in this that matters. Because building a tower is not sinful in and of itself. But we cross the line into sin when the building of whatever it is we're building begins to be about making a name for us and not about God. 
And so that's the question with our lives that we must continually try to answer. Is a desire of our hearts to make a name for ourselves or to bring glory to God? And 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it like this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Well, what does that mean, right? That's probably a familiar verse for many of us. It can be kind of vague, kind of how do we bring some, some teeth into that, right? Well, maybe this quote will help. When talking about the glory of God, this one pastor says, outside of a correct understanding of God's glory, everything becomes surface. Everything from dinner to sex to marriage to kids, it's all shallow, it's all trivial. But when you understand the driving force behind everything, all of a sudden there's this immense amount of joy because everything we do is carried to a deeper level. So here's how I think we can begin to think about doing everything for the glory of God. We want to point to him in all things. We want to reflect his glory with our hearts, with our lives, with our minds, with our actions, in all that we do, from the little things, the ordinary things of life, to the big things that we commit our lives to. Having a cup of coffee and a bagel? Glorify God and bask in the sunrise that he's graced you with again. Eating fajitas? Savor them and glorify God that he's even created flavor combinations like that. Raising kids? Glorify God in the victories and in the struggles. At school with your friends, glorify God by showing them the deep purpose you have in your life. Building a career, glorify God by working hard and treating people well. Building his church, glorify God by making the fame of his name central to your mission. Turning the corner in the last lap of your life, Glorify God by telling how he has been faithful and he has been enough so the next generation may praise his name. There are ways to do all of those things in rebellion against God, to make a name for yourself or your family or your church. But what God wants is that in all that we do, in the small everyday things and in the big things, when things are going our way in life or when life is just one crashing wave after another, whatever we do in all things to bring him glory, point to him, praise him, make much of him, tell how great he is in all of it. And Christian, the call in your life for those that have been born again, have been brought from death into life, sealed with the Holy Spirit, held fast by a sovereign God is to bask in the glory that he's shown you through his son, Jesus Christ, and let that reflect off of you into a world that needs him so much. We are to make his name great in our lives. And in a way that only the wisdom of God could bring about, that would run completely contrary to what the world would have us believe. By doing this and taking the attention off of ourselves and putting it on him, we will actually experience more joy and more meaning than if we make this life about us. So we're all glory thieves at some level. It's been my experience in my own life, and I believe that the Bible backs me up on this. The more I've come to see and to love and to feel the weight of the bigness of God, the holiness of God, the power of God, the glory of God, 
of God. Contrasted by how small and fragile and sinful and mortal I am. And that despite the eternal difference and gap between those two things, he's shown me grace and forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. And that what he wants from me in that is to worship him, to make much of him, to glorify him with my life. Like we must all get to this point where even though we've been made in the image of God and we are of great value, we pale in comparison to knowing who he is. Because yes, he loves you. Yes, he is for you. Yes, he knit you together in your mother's womb and knows every single thing about you, Psalm 139. Yes, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, John 3, 16. Yes, amen, and hallelujah to all of that. You matter to God. I matter to God. This entire world, all the people in it, matter to God. But only he is God, right? Only he is the one who spoke the universe into existence. God is the potter, and we are the clay. We are like dew on the grass. We're here in the morning, and we're gone in the afternoon. And so my prayer for you this morning is that God has given you ears to hear what he wants you to hear about, the reality of who he is, how glorious he is, and that he would, in his mercy, take that past your brain and into your soul. And that maybe today would be a fresh reminder for some of us to once again be reminded to live for the glory of God in everything that we do, to take our eyes off of ourselves and to place them on the person and the work of God that where they belong. Or maybe this is a new concept to you today. Maybe today could be the day where you take the step of believing in this glorious God and the offer of new life that's available to you in his son, Jesus Christ. So like, if your life feels scattered or confused or you feel like it's lacking purpose or meaning, there is something outside of yourself today, greater than who you are, that is worthy of committing your life to. And he will not disappoint. So whatever it is for you this morning, whatever you feel God telling you in this moment, let him do it. Don't resist him. Let it go past your head and into your heart. Don't move past what he's telling you too quickly. And so to kind of create some space for that and allow us to respond to what he may be telling us, we're going to close this morning by singing two songs about boldly approaching the throne of God and about how God is our living hope. Pay attention to the words of these songs and the meaning of them as they seek to tell us the nature and the character of who God is, how sinful we are, yet despite that, he's been merciful and gracious towards us, even when we seek to steal his glory. And so let's sing those songs together this morning as an active process, not as passive participants, but understanding the words and meaning them with our whole hearts. And may we be a people that has changed this morning with a desire to go and to live for the glory of God. Let's ask him for his help in this. Father, I thank you today uh, for your revelation of who you are that we find in Scripture, God. Lord, again, that you're not some faraway God that makes us guess about the point of life and why all this happens and why pain happens and, and why there's evil, but you, know, you help us on the pages of Scripture to come to grips with all of that. 
And even when it's hard to do it and hard to see the, the meaning and the purpose behind it, you give us the faith to believe that you're the point behind it, God. That in all these things, as difficult as they may be, one day everything that's ever been created will point to you and your glory. And that we'll have eternity to figure this out. We'll have eternity for you to reveal more to us about how all the pain points in our lives were actually painting a picture of something more beautiful. And so our ask of you today was that you would, you would show up in our lives, Lord. We want to be a people committed to your glory in our own lives and the life of this church. We want to see your name be made famous in our area. And we ask that you would do that in our lives this morning, God, that you would, you would bring us closer to who you are, that you would help us to feel the weight and the magnitude and to begin to see who you are. God, it's only in your mercy that we will do that, that we will be able to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, God. So I ask that for every single person here this morning, that in your spirit you would move into their soul these truths. And it's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.